A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, we continue our journey through this Easter season as we approach the great feast of Pentecost, which is just a few weeks away. And we continue our exploration of Jesus' discourse during the Last Supper in the upper room. And this discourse, as I've mentioned before, spans chapters 13 through 17. It's a rather lengthy discourse. Many refer to it as his farewell discourse. And here in today's pericope, we have a section wherein Jesus speaks of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the church chooses this specific pericope from this discourse to prepare us for the great feast of Pentecost, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus. And here we have Jesus speaking of this promise, the promise of the outpouring and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so that is a little bit of the context for today's pericope. And I'd like to just go through it a verse at a time. It is quite profound. And so here we have Jesus. If you back up in verse 15, He declares, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we look at that juxtaposition. We see Jesus speaking of love, and he speaks of the commandments. If you love me, you will keep, that is, observe or obey my commandments, my law. You have love and the law. Now, it would be very easy for us, and many of us fall into the trap of mistakenly interpreting this verse to to mean that that Jesus is exhorting us to merely observe the law, to obey the commandments. That is the way in which we prove or demonstrate our love of Jesus, by keeping the commandments. And that is not at all what Jesus is alluding to here when he speaks of, of love and the relationship between love and the law. No, Christianity, the Christian faith, Catholicism cannot be reduced to a merely perfunctory observance of the law. That is, obey the commandments, do what is good, and refrain from doing what is evil. And if we do that, then we are proving our love of Jesus. But is that what he's getting at here? No. He is speaking of his call, our fundamental vocation, 
which is a vocation to love. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, love and the law. But then he goes deeper. Again, context is key. He states here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's stop there for a second. We see that Jesus here in speaking of his call, our fundamental vocation to, to love Jesus. How do we love Jesus? By obeying his commandments. Now, what commandments, what particular commandments is Jesus referring to here? Well, obviously, he states in the Gospels quite clearly that he has not come to abolish the law, that is the law of Moses, but he has come to fulfill them. But what's more, Jesus exhorts us for example, in the gospel, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, in Matthew chapter 22, we find Jesus being questioned by a Pharisee who is intent on testing him. He asks him, he queries him, which is the greatest commandment of the 613 statutes found in the Mosaic law, which is the greatest? And so Jesus summarizes this. And here in this passage, he declares in verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Close quote. And so Jesus summarizes the law, the law of Moses, and he roots it and grounds it in this call to love, to love God first and foremost above all things and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. It is a fundamental call to love. That's critically important because as I said a moment ago, we cannot reduce Christianity or Catholicism to a merely perfunctory observance of the law of God. The law leads us to love. It's rooted and grounded in love. That is our vocation. That's the essence of the law which leads us to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. What's more, in the gospel, if you back up, remember we are in John chapter 14, but if you back up to the previous chapter, chapter 13, Jesus is giving his disciples an example, an example that they are to follow. Remember that he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And in verse 34, we find Jesus declaring, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Close quote. So we see that Jesus, in Matthew 22, speaks of the great or the greatest commandment. Here he speaks of a new commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now that begs the question, what is new about this new commandment? Because Jesus has already summarized the Mosaic law. 
by exhorting us to love God and what's more, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So what is so new about this new commandment? Well, look at this verse. It says that you love one another even as I have loved you. We are called, we are exhorted by Jesus to love as he has loved us. And how has Jesus loved us? With perfect love. He has laid down his life, poured himself out as a libation for us, for our salvation. He provides us with a model that we are to follow. And that is a tall order. I mean, think about it. It's not that we are merely called to to love according to the standards of the world, but no, Jesus is setting the bar. He's setting the standard by his own example. But let me ask you something. Can you love as Jesus loves? Can we, humanly speaking, can we love with that radical self-emptying, with that devotion, with that commitment, sacrificing and surrendering all for the sake of the beloved? If we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that we fall woefully short of that ideal of loving with that radical love, with that sacrificial love, with the love of Jesus. And so going back to that first statement that Jesus makes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We will obey his commandments, his radical call to love. Now that is daunting, my friends. How then can we say that we love Jesus if, if we fall so miserably short of that ideal? Well, this is the point here. Jesus is speaking of love and of the law. But then he continues and he speaks to us of the Spirit and he speaks to us of communion. Verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Now, he is speaking here of the Holy Spirit. Another counselor, which begs the question, well, who is the first counselor? Jesus is the first counselor. And the word that appears here in the RSV Catholic edition is counselor. On Sunday, you're going to hear from the New American Bible translation. It renders it advocate. And the Greek word that appears here is parakletos, which is where we get the English word paraclete. And this word, in fact, let me go to the catechism of the Catholic Church just to illustrate this. In paragraph 692 of the Catechism, we read as follows, and I quote, When Jesus proclaims and promises the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the paraclete, literally, he who is called to one's side, advocatus. Paraclete is commonly translated by consoler, and Jesus is the first consoler. The Lord also called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. Close quote. And so the counselor or the advocate here that Jesus is referring to is the Holy Spirit. He is the helper that Jesus is going to send to his disciples. Now, this is critically important. Why? Because apart from the Holy Spirit of Christ, it is impossible for us to truly obey and keep the commandments. Apart from the Holy Spirit, it's impossible for us to truly love as Jesus commands us to love, to love as he loved. And so here, again, Jesus is speaking of love 
and the law. He then moves into speaking to us of the Holy Spirit and communion or the indwelling because it is precisely the Lord who enables us, who makes it possible for us to love as he loved and as he continues to love. I hope that makes sense here because loving Jesus, yes, while it requires that we obey the law, it is impossible for us to love as Jesus loved and to obey the law apart from the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who enables us by virtue of our baptism, as we're going to see in a moment in today's first reading, by virtue of confirmation as well, which is the completion of baptism, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. We're made temples of the Holy Spirit, and in confirmation, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit and the graces that flow from the Holy Spirit enable us to live as Jesus lived and to love as Jesus loved. I hope that makes sense here. So immediately, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, how do we do this? I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, Another note in speaking of the commandments of the Lord, which can clearly seem, if we're honest with ourselves, to be incredibly daunting, is that Jesus makes it clear to us that we are to take his yoke upon us. If you go back to Matthew chapter 11, he speaks so tenderly to his disciples. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon thee and learn from me, for I am meek and and humble of heart. Take my yoke, my burden upon you, the burden of his law, his commandments. Take my yoke, the yoke of my teaching upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. It is a passage, a verse that is, is quite mysterious. He's inviting us to take his burden, his yoke upon us, and that is an image of his teaching, of his commandments, of the gospel. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And what I want to mention here is Jesus speaks about his call to, to this radical love, to the obedience of the commandments, the obedience of his gospel, is that his commandments, Jesus' commandments, are not burdensome. Let me say that again. Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. And for that, I want to give you another passage here. If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, we read as follows. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Again, here John is speaking of the relationship between love and the law. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, that we keep his law. And his law, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not. And how are they not burdensome? Precisely because he imparts to us his Holy Spirit. See, obedience to the law of God, obedience to the gospel, is not something that we do on our own. It is something that God does through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
operative in our lives, provided that we surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. See, it is God who enables us to truly fulfill his law. For apart from him, we can do nothing. That's critically important, my friends. We cannot reduce Catholicism. We cannot reduce the Christian faith to a merely perfunctory observance of God's commandments or his law, something that we do on our own, that we strive to do apart from the grace of God, apart from the Holy Spirit that he imparts to us. It is precisely in and through the Holy Spirit that we are able to please God, that we are able to obey the commandments. And so I hope that you're comforted by that, that his commandments are not burdensome because he provides us, he gifts us with the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who comes to our defense, who comes to our aid, who helps us to overcome, to overcome the temptations, to overcome the trials and the tribulations, to overcome all of the obstacles that seek to inhibit us from doing God's will. Now, with that in mind, we return to the gospel. Once again, Jesus speaks of love and the law, and then he speaks to us of the spirit and of communion or the indwelling. He says, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's speaking of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the communion that his disciples, that we will enjoy when he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. He continues in verse 18 I will not leave you desolate. In the New American Bible translation, it's rendered orphans. I will not leave you desolate. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And he's speaking here of his departure, of his exodus and ultimately he is referring to his passion death his resurrection and his ascension and jesus here is speaking of this departure i will not leave you desolate i'm not going to abandon you i'm not going to leave you orphans i will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because i live you will live also in that day you will know that i am am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's speaking of our participation in the life of the Blessed Trinity. We are made partakers of the divine nature by virtue of our baptism. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us children of God. And because of that, we now participate. We're partakers of the divine nature, and we participate in the life of the Trinity. And this is our destiny. This is ultimately the goal of our lives is to be able to behold God face to face and to enjoy perfect communion with him. That communion begins here on earth and it begins through this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this indwelling that we receive at the moment of our baptism. So Jesus speaks of this, of this communion that is effectuated by the indwelling of the Spirit. Once again, love, law, Spirit, communion. He continues, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
He's reiterating the point that we've just addressed in the first verse, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let's stop there. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Once again, in order to love Jesus, we must keep, observe his commandments. But it's interesting here, the language. He who has my commandments. Let's go back to the Old Testament. How did God deliver the commandments, his commandments, to his people vis-a-vis Moses? God wrote on those two stone tablets with his very finger, his law, the law of God. And Moses delivered this law written on stone tablets to the people. But now Jesus here, remember, he's giving us a new law, a law that will not be written on stone tablets, but rather will be written on our hearts. And in fact, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, we find here a powerful and iconic prophecy concerning the new covenant that God would establish. It states here in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. Let's stop there for a second. So Jesus here is speaking of this future time. Behold, the days are coming when he'll make a new covenant. Then he begins to contrast this new covenant with the old covenant. He's referring to the Exodus covenant that he made through his servant Moses. So he continues here, verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. Let's stop there. Don't miss that. (laughs) He's comparing and he's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. Think about the old covenant. Think about the Exodus. God delivered his law by writing them on stone tablets. But in this new covenant, in this new dispensation to come, this covenant is going to be different. It's going to transcend the old covenant. And God is not going to write his law on stone tablets, no, but rather he's going to write his law upon our hearts. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Close quote. Isn't that powerful? And so Jesus here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the new Moses who's come to lead us in this new and definitive and salvific exodus from the slavery of sin into the promised land of salvation through his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. 
he is going to write his law, his new commandments upon our hearts. That's precisely what takes place. First in the upper room on Easter Sunday, when he breathes on the disciples, there is an impartation of the Holy Spirit. A measure of the Holy Spirit is, is imparted to the apostles. But then on Pentecost, he pours out the abundance, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he writes his law upon their hearts. And we, by virtue of baptism, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Lord writes his law upon our hearts as well. This is the essence of the new covenant. Love, the law, the Holy Spirit, and communion or the indwelling. These are the themes that that course through this Sunday's gospel pericope. Powerful. Now, before we move on from today's gospel pericope, I want to cite one more passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And this passage is taken from paragraph 788, which states as follows, and it's keyed to today's gospel. Quote, when his visible presence was taken from them, Jesus did not leave his disciples orphans. He promised to remain with them until the end of time. He sent them his spirit. As a result, communion with Jesus has become, in a way, more intense. Quote, By communicating his spirit, Christ mystically constitutes as his body those brothers of his who are called together from every nation. Close quote. That's powerful. I love how the catechism phrases it here. As a result, communion with Jesus has become, in a way, more intense more intense. Why? Because he's sending us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us. And we as Christians, we must deepen, I think, our not only our awareness, but our appreciation for the advocate, for the paraclete. The spirit of Christ has been poured into our hearts. And there's an indwelling and a communion that we enjoy by virtue of our baptism, by virtue of our confirmation. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit who enables us to love, to love Jesus by obeying and fulfilling and keeping his commandments, which are not burdensome precisely because it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to truly fulfill God's commandments. Beautiful. Now, from here, let us turn to our first reading, which is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. And in this pericope, we're presented with the figure of Philip, not Philip the Apostle, but Philip the Deacon. You might remember in our last episode, the first reading was taken from chapter 6 of the Acts of the Apostles. And we learned about the seven who were chosen to be deacons who were ordained, anointed, and appointed by the apostles for a particular service. And named among these seven was Philip. And here we're presented with Philip who is sent on a missionary journey, a very special missionary journey. It states here in verse 5, 
Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Let's stop there for a second. You might remember, if you were to back up to chapter 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, in verse 8, the parting words of our blessed Lord as he prepared to ascend to the Father were these, but you will receive power, he says to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus, in speaking to them of their mission, in speaking to them of the impending outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they would be anointed and appointed to evangelize. And he specifically mentions Samaria. And here we find Philip being appointed to evangelize, to proclaim the good news to the Samaritans. Once again, Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Verse 6, And the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs which he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's stop there for a second. And so Philip is sent to proclaim the gospel to them. He proclaims the gospel. It says here that the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip. They were receptive. Not only that, but but the word proclaimed, the gospel, the message proclaimed by Philip was confirmed by what? By signs and wonders. And we find this pattern throughout the Acts of the Apostles. Essentially, the apostles are ministering after the model set before them by Jesus. Jesus, when he preached, when he ministered, when he evangelized, oftentimes signs and wonders accompanied his preaching in order to confirm his preaching. We find the apostles following that apostolic evangelistic pattern of preaching and then accompanying that preaching, complementing that preaching with signs and wonders that confirm the message. So it says here, when they heard him and saw the signs which he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So we find here healing and deliverance. It says here in verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. Now that's the first part of our pericope. Then there's a shift. We jump to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so in this second half of our first reading, we find that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they had received the gospel, and had been baptized. If you back up, and this is not included in the pericope, this is skipped over, but in verse 12, we read, but when they believed, 
that is the Samaritans, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the Samaritans were evangelized. They were baptized. They received baptism. But then we're told that when the apostles in Jerusalem, when they heard, when they caught wind of the fact that the Samaritans had received the word of God, that they had received the gospel, that they had converted, that they had been baptized, they sent to them Peter and John in order that they might pray for them with the laying on of hands. We're told that they did just that. And as a result of them praying for the Samaritans, as a result of them laying on their hands, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now, what's going on here? (laughs) Well, we have Philip, who is not an apostle. Remember, he is a deacon. He's not a priest or presbyter, nor is he a bishop, an apostle. So he does not have the authority to lay on his hands and to impart and to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we find here with the actions of Peter and Paul, we find here the biblical foundation for the sacrament of confirmation, which is distinct from baptism. Confirmation completes baptism. Philip baptizes the Samaritans, but he cannot confirm them. For that, we need the apostles. Therefore, Peter and John are sent to the Samaritans in order to confirm them. And when they pray for them, when they lay their hands on them, the Samaritans receive a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now, here we have the complementarity of these sacraments. Now, in the West, for we Latin Rite Catholics, these sacraments have been separated. They're two very distinct moments in this process of initiation. Most of us were baptized as infants, and then later on, we received the sacrament of confirmation. In the Eastern Rite Catholic churches, we find that these two sacraments remain together, closely associated. In fact, when one is baptized, one receives confirmation. They call it chrismation. One receives that holy anointing at the same time, after baptism. In the Latin Rite Church, that is not the case. It is separated, but they are related. They are intimately bound together, as we know, theologically speaking, that the sacrament of confirmation completes baptism. So we find here, in this pericope, we find here evidence for, I mean, not only further evidence for the sacrament of baptism, which is necessary for salvation, as Christ indicates to Nicodemus, unless one is born anew or again by water and the Spirit, one cannot enter into or inherit the kingdom of God. So baptism is necessary. It's indispensable. Then we also find here the biblical foundation for the sacrament of confirmation, which completes baptism. And that sacrament, as we find here, is properly administered by an apostle or a successor of the apostles, which is why By and large, in the church today, it is the bishop who has that primary responsibility to confirm. We find bishops, especially during this season, confirming, basically traveling from parish to parish and confirming those who have been preparing for that sacrament. Now, just as an aside, the bishop can delegate this authority. He has the power to delegate this authority to confirm to priests. So you'll find in some cases that it's not the bishop who confirms, 
but a priest who has been delegated, who has been given that authority to confirm. But properly speaking, that ordinary power and authority belongs to the bishop as a successor to the apostles. Now, one other point I'd like to make here, going back to what I said about the fulfillment of Jesus's command to go and to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, there's an even deeper level of meaning here because Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. In going to the Samaritans, in announcing the good news to them, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies uttered by the prophets of the Old Covenant. And specifically, I'm thinking of a prophecy that's found in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. In this prophecy, God speaking through the prophet is announcing to Israel, Israel that had defected from the Lord, Israel that had essentially been unfaithful to the Lord, engaged in idolatry and abandoned its faith, Israel that was corrupted by the influence of the pagan nations, I'm speaking specifically of the the northern kingdom. Remember that after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was split in half, in two. Yeah, the northern kingdom comprised of 10 of the 12 tribes. They broke off from the royal tribe of Judah. And Benjamin is also located in the southern kingdom. So those 10 tribes broke off and established their own kingdom known as the northern kingdom. And their capital was Samaria. And they engaged in idolatry. They engaged in in human sacrifice, in all sorts of, of sinful debauchery because of the influence of the pagan nations. And God punished the northern kingdom. Back in the year 722 BC, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to conquer the northern kingdom and to deport the inhabitants, essentially dispersing the 10 tribes. This is what we mean when we speak of the 10 lost tribes of the house of Israel. They were punished because of their infidelity because of their wickedness. God allowed the Assyrian Empire. He used the Assyrians to punish the northern kingdom. Now, the Lord did the same with the southern kingdom. He allowed the Babylonians to come and to conquer them, to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and to take them into captivity. This is known as the Babylonian conquest and captivity. But with the northern kingdom, these 10 tribes were lost. They were dispersed. And the remnant, those that remained, in the northern kingdom, they intermarried and intermingled with a number of these pagan nations that were sent to repopulate the northern kingdom. And so the Lord allowed all this to happen. But in this particular passage from the book of the prophet Ezekiel, God not only speaks of, and I'd encourage you to read the entirety of this chapter as he recounts all that unfolded and just how wicked and rebellious the people of Israel were and how God allowed the Assyrians, he punished his people by allowing the Assyrians to come to conquer them and to take them into foreign lands. But he speaks of a time of restoration. And that's what I want to get to here. I want to read just, just a portion of this so that you can understand how significant this missionary trip was for Philip to announce the gospel, the good news to the Samaritans was the fulfillment of this prophecy. It says here, again, Ezekiel 36 Verse 23, let's begin there. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. He's speaking to Israel. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you 
I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I, this is verse 24, will take you from the nations. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, watch this. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Again, think about Acts of the Apostles. Think about our first reading. Think about this missionary journey of Deacon Philip, the announcement of the gospel, the conversion of the Samaritans, the baptism of the Samaritans. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, a new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Close quote. Did you get that? Look at verse 26. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. Go back to the gospel the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And cause you to walk in my statutes, in my commandments. Once again, going back to today's gospel. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances so once again we have this relationship between love and the law the spirit and communion or indwelling we have this manifested with the proclamation of the good news the evangelization of the samaritans the fulfillment of this prophecy beautiful powerful prophecy fulfilled Now, with that said, my friends, let's quickly go to our responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 66. And the response is, let all the earth cry out to God with joy. And I want you to be mindful as we read this psalm, as we listen to that refrain, let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Just remember what it's stated in today's first reading, verse 8 that after the Samaritans received the gospel and after they witnessed the signs and wonders that followed the proclamation of the gospel, it says, so there was much joy in that city. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) There was much joy in that city because of the deliverance, because of the salvation that was brought by Philip in the name of Jesus Christ and under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So here, The response or the refrain for our responsorial psalm is let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Let's begin in verse 1. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how terrible are thy deeds. Now let me stop there for a second. I know I pointed this out before when certain translations 
use the word terrible. It can be a little bit confusing, especially in the Old Testament. There are times when the word terrible does not mean what we think it means, meaning bad. But in this instance, as is the case throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you'll find that this word can also mean it connotes something that is great. So in this context, say to God, how terrible or how great are thy deeds. Verse 4, all the earth worships thee. They sing praises to thee, sing praises to thy name. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He is terrible, again, great in his deeds among men. He turned the sea into dry land. And there you have a reference to the Exodus. He turned the sea into dry land. Men passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Then we jump to verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for me. Verse 20. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Beautiful. So this is a, a psalm of Todah, or thanksgiving, for the mighty and great, terrible deeds of the Lord, who delivered us. Again, he uses the examples referencing the Exodus. And in like manner, we, who are partaking of this new Exodus in Christ, we also have great reasons to rejoice as the Samaritans did when they received the salvation of Jesus Christ through the preaching of Philip and through the ministry of the apostles, Peter and John. And let me close off by citing our epistle, which once again is taken from St. Peter's writings. This is first Peter chapter three, verses 15 through 18. We read, and I quote, in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right if that should be God's will, then for doing wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so here we have an exhortation, a very iconic exhortation from St. Peter the Apostle. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Now, when you survey the readings, especially when you read this passage in light of what we find in today's first reading from the Acts of the Apostles with Philip's missionary journey and the evangelization of the Samaritans, he went into enemy territory. <laughs> And that required a tremendous amount of courage and conviction to go into enemy territory, hostile territory, in order to announce the good news. His faith was intrepid because he was anointed by and sustained by and inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
And so with great courage, he ventured into Samaria in order to announce the good news of Jesus Christ. And he was able to not only announce the good news, but I'm sure that that raised a whole host of, of questions that he had to contend with. And so when it says here, when Peter declares, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. You better believe that the deacon, in venturing into enemy territory and announcing this good news under the unction, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, was also furnished with the words to be able to explain and to defend the faith. And he did so with gentleness and reverence. It was able to win over the people for Christ. And in like manner, we who have received the Holy Spirit by virtue of our baptism, we who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit with the sacrament of confirmation, we have been anointed and appointed to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses. We are charged with the responsibility of announcing the good news and to do so with courage and with with holy boldness what's more we're charged with the task of not only announcing the gospel but also defending the faith in fact the catechism of the catholic church and i'll close on this note in speaking of the sacrament of confirmation it communicates to us the fact that this sacrament empowers us to spread and defend the faith that this is the anointing that we receive by virtue of our confirmation. And so what I want to do is I want to cite paragraphs 1302 and 1303, which read, and I quote, It is evident from its celebration that the effect of the sacrament of confirmation is the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit as once granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Then we pick up in paragraph 1303. From this fact, confirmation brings an increase and deepening of baptismal grace. Continues, it gives us a special strength of the Holy Spirit to spread and defend the faith by word and action as true witnesses of Christ to confess the name of Christ boldly and never to be ashamed of the cross. Close quote. Philip. Philip, under the inspiration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, with great boldness, holy boldness, he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. He was able to spread and defend the faith with boldness leading the Samaritans to receive Christ through baptism. And the apostles, Peter and John, complemented and completed this sacramental initiation by laying their hands on the Samaritans and praying for them for the sealing of the Holy Spirit in confirmation. And so, my friends, in conclusion, as we continue to reflect upon these rich passages from Scripture, as we prepare to celebrate the sacred liturgy for this sixth Sunday of Easter. Let us be mindful of the words of Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus commands us to to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel, to evangelize, to make disciples of all nations. He commands not just some of us, but, but each and every one of us to be his ambassadors, his witnesses. And he declares in that same gospel that he will not leave us orphans he will not leave us desolate 
but he will send us the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, not only to inspire us, but to equip us, to to move with great power in and through us, to be able to reach others with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, to lead others to faith and to salvation. We each have the responsibility to, to fulfill that mission in our own lives. And this, as we approach the great feast of Pentecost, the great feast of the Holy Spirit, it gives us an opportunity to begin to pray to the Lord that he might renew in us this conviction, this this belief that we too are called, anointed and appointed, to bear much fruit, to proclaim the good news as, as Philip did to the Samaritans, to proclaim it as, as Peter and John did, to proclaim it as as so many Christians have over the course of these 20 centuries, faithfully and with, with boldness, with conviction. We here who live in the 21st century must also recognize that we are surrounded by Samaritans. We're surrounded by, by those who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we must pray to the Holy Spirit that he will embolden us, fill us with courage and zeal, that we might faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Our world is in desperate need of this good news, my friends. And so we must move out of our comfort zones and allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into fulfilling our vocation, this lofty vocation, to be witnesses for the Lord. We can only do that under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray for the grace to be able to surrender to the Lord, to pray to the Holy Spirit, and to give him dominion over our lives. For as the scripture declares, it is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Well, my friends, this brings our episode to a close. And as always, I hope and pray that this podcast has been and continues to be a blessing for you. If it has been, praise God for that. I'd encourage you if you're watching this episode via our YouTube channel to please don't forget to hit that like button. And what's more, if you have yet to subscribe to the channel, please do so by liking and subscribing. You help to indicate to YouTube that there's value in this content and they'll be more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. And that's the whole point of this channel. It's to make Christ known. What's more, I would encourage you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast. You can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. By becoming a patron, you become essentially a co-producer of this podcast. And speaking of patrons, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to all of my amazing patrons for their continued support and encouragement. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. So if you wish to partner with me in this, please consider becoming a patron today. You can do so by visiting, once again, patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. Well, my friends, until we gather again next week to consider the readings for the great feast of the ascension of our Lord. My prayer continues to be for you in the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. May the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.